Hey, good morning, everyone. Happy 4th of July to you. So glad that you're here. Um, If uh, we haven't met, I'm Greg Brady. I'm the pastor here at Hope Church. Thank you for worshiping here today. If you're online, thank you for worshiping with us online. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. I hope you brought your Bible. Uh, We do have a few Bibles available in the seats or in the seats in front of you if um, you need to find one. We're going to read the first six verses. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, And in his own home, he cannot do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Let us pray. Gracious God, we know that it is your Holy Spirit that helps us to have faith, that gives the gift of belief. And we pray for that gift now that as we read your word, as we hear your word proclaimed to us, your spirit would speak to our hearts in a way that changes us, that inspires us with courage and conviction and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. We are starting a new series called Bold Families for Faith. Um, more and more today, it seems like boldness is celebrated in our culture. And what I want to do over the next four weeks is look at some of the ways that um, we are called as Christians to live boldly. And we will notice that uh, these ways in which we are encouraged to live boldly may be countercultural or counterintuitive to what we believe um, about boldness. But more and more today, it seems like boldness is celebrated. Um, take a look at motivational sayings in their many forms today, whether that's on social media, uh, whether it's a bumper sticker or a T-shirt, or one of those cute little wood uh, signs for your home that has an inspirational saying on it, uh, maybe a magnet for your refrigerator, uh, screensaver, whatever it be. Uh, you'll see statements like, be different, um, make your mark, be yourself, stand out. See, one of the values affirmed today is believe in yourself and anything is possible. Have you heard that before? Have you read that before? Have you seen that in some form of media today? Believe in yourself and everything is possible. Um, Do a quick Google search on that phrase. And you'll see lots of graphics on it. Um, oppositely, 
Google the phrase uh, blend into the crowd, and you won't see any graphics of something like that today. So we have this, this value from our culture about being bold, believing in yourself, anything is possible. And I don't want to speak too negatively about believing in yourself or being bold in that regard, only to say that there is a much greater belief upon which we must build any notion of confidence in self or desire for boldness or leaving our mark on the world. If we're going to do those things, we must do those things having built them on a much more fundamental core belief. And Mark chapter 6 tells us what that belief is. And since you're in church, I bet you can tell me what that fundamental core belief is, and that is belief in Jesus, right? We're in church. Of course, that is the answer. But is all belief in Jesus the same? I was reading a book. The author um, suggested this as a litmus test to that question. Is all belief in Jesus the same? Imagine two individuals who um, would certainly affirm the Apostles' Creed, would say the Apostles' Creed, saying, I believe this, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, says that with conviction. One of those individuals is full of joy, kindness, optimism, and is generally a pleasant, delightful person to be around. The other person who confesses that same belief is impatient, demanding, discouraging, and seems to deflate whatever room or situation he or she finds themselves in. Are those two individuals, belief in Jesus, the same? What I want to point out, and what Jesus certainly points out in the Scripture, is that we can be weak in belief. Let me read you um, something from a Barna poll back in the early 2000s. Um, It uh, begins by making the statement, and then I'll put some things on the screen. It reads, uh, Americans are very comfortable with religious faith. Most adults and even teenagers see themselves as people of faith. But then it goes on to say this, but their faith is rarely the focal point of their life or a critical factor in their decision-making. And then it makes this, uh, just kind of gives this stat to us, 15%. According to this poll, of regular churchgoers give their relation to God as their first priority. We can be weak in our faith. Today, I'm hoping we will grow as people whose faith does play a critical role in our decision-making and who see uh, their relationship with God as the most uh, important thing, first priority in our life. And to that end, let's look at what this scripture uh, from Mark says about bold faith. First, bold faith believes Jesus' promises. When we think of Jesus' promises, sometimes, I think, we apply wishful thinking to them instead of hopeful confidence in the promises of Jesus. Uh, sometimes we can say we believe in Jesus, we believe in his promises, but in actuality our beliefs don't 
seem to run very deep, and they don't influence what we do. Michael Novak was a, um, a Christian uh, pastor, writer, thinker, uh, professor of philosophy, and um, influential in um, America, America's politics back in the kind of later 1900s. Um, he wrote about three types of convictions, three types of belief. And, and the first time, the first kind he wrote about are, are public beliefs. Public beliefs are what I want people to think that I believe. I want people to believe, to think that I am a law-abiding citizen. That I want people to believe that I am a good husband. I want people to believe that I am a, uh, you know, this perfect Christian. And so I may present things about myself that I may not actually believe to be true. That's a public belief. Then he writes, the next kind are private beliefs. And private beliefs are beliefs that I, um, that I want to think that I believe. And I think we're full of private beliefs. I think of uh, the Apostle Peter. Remember when uh, Peter, the night that Jesus was arrested, he made this statement to Jesus, I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you, Christ. That was a private belief. He really did believe that about himself. But later that evening, that private belief was tested three times. And three times in a row, Peter denied that he knew Jesus. So this private belief, it's something about himself that he wanted to believe, but he might not have really believed it, that he would not abandon Christ. And then the third kind of belief is core beliefs. And core beliefs are what my actions reveal that I believe. These beliefs are demonstrated through my action. If I really believe Jesus' promises, then that should affect my actions. It should shape my priorities and how I spend my time. It should shape what I pray for. It, it, it should shape how much I trust God, what I use my life for, my resources for. If I really believe Jesus' promises. Now, when we speak of bold faith, what kind of convictions are we talking about? Public, private, or core? Okay, you got three choices. <laughs> core beliefs. Of course, core beliefs. Um, So let me tell you what bold faith, in, bold faith in Christ at its core is about this core belief that Jesus wants to build into us, and it's this. Bold faith is the core conviction that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That was the, that was the first, that was the earliest creed that Christians had, the early church had. The Apostle Paul writes about it two times in his letter, this fundamental core early creed, Jesus is Lord. Now that is a statement not just to, to memorize, right? It's not a, a, just something to pack inside of your mind as a memory statement. It is a statement to have as a mental map instead. 
of how we see the world. See, we have this mental map about how the world operates, and then we live in accordance to our mental map of it. People have a mental map of how things really are. For some, their mental map tells them, you know, there's nothing certain in this world. We're all skating on thin ice. There's nothing you can really count on. You know, for some people, their mental map of reality is, I'm just going to do whatever I see everyone else doing. Because they must be right. You see people working like crazy to get ahead at work, to get ahead at school, to get ahead in their extracurriculars or in their relationships with their friends, in their social standing, so that they can manage every possible scenario or outcome in life. And their mental map tells them that uh, you must work hard to get all the breaks because if you don't, well, nobody else is really looking out for you. So you've got to look out for yourself. That could be someone's mental map of the world. The only problem to those ways of thinking is that we are not at the mercy of some impersonal universe where everyone must get ahead because no one else is looking out for them. See, the Bible offers an alternative mental map. Jesus offers an alternative mental map for the world, and that is we are at the mercy of a Lord of the Lord of the universe, Jesus is Lord, who is completely sovereign, and he cares about you, and he makes promises to you. See, that's what the chapters just before Mark chapter 6 are all about. Mark 3, 4, 5, read those chapters, and Jesus is walking all over uh, Galilee, all these other towns around Nazareth. And he's performing miracles. Why is he doing that? Because he looks out at these, in these different towns, and he sees people who are lost and lonely. The Bible says that he sees them like they are sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on them. And then Mark 6 comes and Jesus goes to his hometown and Mark is using the story to ask us, what is Jesus' home crowd going to say to him? What is Jesus' home crowd going to give as a response? See, we're, in some ways, Jesus' hometown crowd. We know Jesus here. I mean, you're here this morning. And likely, you either know Jesus or at least you've heard of Jesus. We're like that hometown crowd in Nazareth. Are we going to believe Jesus or are we going to doubt? That's what Mark chapter 6, these first six verses introduced to us, this question. Are you going to believe or are you going to doubt? And this leads us to our next point, second point about bold faith. Bold faith doesn't need answers to all of our questions. The townspeople ask lots of questions about Jesus. They were amazed at Jesus. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says that they were amazed at Jesus. He began to teach in the synagogue there in Nazareth, and many who heard him were amazed. Now, that isn't a good statement. That word amazed there is not how we might think of amazed, like, whoa, wow, that's great. That word there means they were stricken with panic. That's one of the ways that that word is used in the Scriptures. Their amazement did not uh, turn them towards Jesus, but rather away from Jesus. So what led to this negative amazement that the townspeople displayed to Jesus being in their midst? When you look at the end of verse 3, look at at verse 3. They start asking these questions about Jesus. Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and 
Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. They likely were offended by his identity, this this individual that they knew as this boy growing up in Nazareth. And they asked all these questions. Oh, come on, isn't this Mary's son? Now, that likely was a little slam against Jesus, wasn't it? Uh, Jewish etiquette would have been to uh, identify someone, certainly a, a male, as his father's son. And here the townspeople instead say, isn't this Mary's son? So maybe just this little insult uh, to Jesus by highlighting that he was an illegitimate child in their eyes, that they knew that Joseph was not his real father. Or maybe that's just a question that identifies him. Oh, come on, we know Jesus as this little kid that grew up here. Um, he grew up in our streets, and our fields. We've seen this little boy. We know his family. Aren't these his brothers and sisters? There's no way someone from this family could do all these wondrous things and teach with such authority. Who does he think that he is? Coming back around, trying to show us all up. So I want you to notice something about the townspeople's questions. They are not fact-finding questions, are they? They're not looking for legitimate answers. They had a predisposition against Jesus. They were starting from a position of suspicion instead of from a position of faith. And the starting point of suspicion manifested itself in the form of these questions that really were excuses for their stubborn disbelief. See, here's another thing that bold faith does. Bold faith questions our questions. Not that questions are bad, but bold faith makes us question the questions that we're asking. Are we asking legitimate questions so that we can better come to know Jesus from a standpoint of faith? Or are the questions that we ask just prideful excuses for why you just will not believe and yield your life to Jesus? I want to go ahead and release our junior hires for their breakout time as they further discuss discuss um, bold faith. Uh, it's very natural to ask for some kind of evidence or proof that Jesus indeed is who he says that he is. Like this quote from Elton Trueblood, uh, he wrote, The deepest conviction of a Christian is that Christ was not wrong. That he wasn't wrong about what he believed him about himself, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, Lord and Savior. And we're, we're measuring, is, is Christ wrong about himself? Because if he's right, if Jesus is right about himself, here's the gravity of it all. If Jesus is right about who he is, if he really is God's Son, the Messiah, that changes everything. It means I have to live completely different if that's the case. I have to take Jesus at his word if he really is who he said that he is. I, I really have to treat him as the ultimate authority of my life if he is who he says that he is. What he says goes. I have to believe and act on his promises. 
And because the implications of whether or not Jesus is the Messiah are so life-altering, people can demand proof, objective, measurable proof. And they refuse to believe unless they see that objective, measurable proof of the reality of God. And so you might wonder, why doesn't God give us that objective, measurable proof that someone would see and say, oh, well, case closed on that. God is real. Why doesn't God give us that objective proof of his existence? Because God has chosen a different way for us to relate to him. Um, and it, it may be a little frustrating at times. Uh, God has chosen to relate to us and for us to relate to him through faith. Why is that? Uh, Peter Kreeft is um, a philosophy professor at Boston College and is uh, one of the chief apologists today here in America of Christian belief. And here's, he gives a short answer as why God does not give objective, measurable, concrete proof to his reality. He says this, because God is a person and not a principle. See, I can believe a principle based on that concrete evidence, right? That's, that's how I believe a, a principle. I, I, see the, I see the formula. I see that formula tested over and over and over again. I see that mathematicians and scientists have believed that formula for hundreds of years, and I say, oh, okay, well, I must, that principle seems pretty true based on the, uh, the, the objective evidence. I believe a person when I develop a relationship with that person. And God has chosen to walk with us in a relationship. And so he wants us to come to know him through faith and not through these objective, measurable evidences of his existence. God says, I want a relationship with you. And it's not going to be built on objective evidence. Now, you might find traces of that evidence as you walk with God along the way, but that relationship with God is going to be first built on trusting him and allowing him to show you his reality along the way, not from a starting point of suspicion and then demanding that God reveals himself to you. So are you starting from hardened disbelief or openness to Jesus this morning? It's important for us to question our questions this morning. Um, Because I want you to notice one of the warnings that this passage has for us. I want you to notice the result of the disbelief of the people of Nazareth. They missed out on the blessing of Jesus. He he did not do any miracles there, um, our scripture told us. The Bible has very little to say of Jesus and the people of Nazareth, Nazareth from that point on. Jesus spending time there, interacting with the people of Nazareth. Nazareth. They miss out on Christ's activity. And this leads us to the third point about bold faith. Bold faith believes that miracles will happen. How about that this morning? Bold faith believes that miracles will happen. 
And that's the tragedy of the story. Jesus' very own hometown people miss out on his miracles, on the blessings of God due to their lack of faith. And we need to, we need to think through verse 5 just a little bit. Verse 5 says that he cannot do any miracles there except um, lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He could not do them. Really? Really? Could Jesus not do those miracles um, there? Well, I, I don't think that means it was impossible for Jesus to do those miracles. Like he, if he really wanted to, he couldn't do them. Um, like he didn't even have the power to do that. It does mean that miracles to an unfaithful, unbelieving town is inconsistent with how the kingdom of God works. See, God invites people to be a part of his kingdom. He does not force his kingdom upon you. God does not force himself on a hostile audience. God is not trying to trick anyone into believing in him. Jesus performing his miracles, it wasn't like some glitzy Las Vegas magician, you know, putting on some slick show to get some oohs and ahs and a standing ovation at the end. He doesn't want some superficial response to his miracles. He doesn't need our praise. Jesus is not out to impress us. Jesus could not do miracles because of their faithlessness, because miracles are not to cause us to have faith from a position of disbelief. Miracles are there to bolster up an already present faith. Miracles are to encourage us as we remain open to Jesus. Miracles are a part of living in God's kingdom, because In God's kingdom, God is king. Where his ways go, where the laws of physics aren't the only laws. And if faithlessness led to miracles not being done, then there's a corollary to that, it seems. Faithfulness, faith, bold faith, leads to miracles being done. Maybe, maybe, the ones that we recognize as miracles, and maybe those actions of Jesus that we wouldn't recognize as miracles, that we might not see. Uh, so we can believe that Jesus is, is always at work moving things in your life in the direction, in a way that will bless you. Believe, you can believe that Jesus is protecting you, even when you don't notice that. You can believe that Jesus is divinely, personally, actively at work in your life, and in the circumstances of your life, and that Jesus is looking for faith from you. Um, It seems that Jesus asks us to have faith where there is uncertainty. And faith sometimes does not remove that uncertainty, and so therefore... Faith doesn't remove fear necessarily. Faith is what helps us to move, even when we're afraid, move forward in obedience and trust. I want to look at Hebrews 11, verse 1. Um, Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. There's that element of bold faith where we, we, we don't see. But there's a hope, there's confidence, 
There's assurance, even though we don't fully see. And, and what is it that we hope for, by the way? I mean, this, this is not some blank check Bible promise. Just fill in the blank. This is what I'm hoping for, God, and I know that you'll give it to me. Of course not. What is it that we, what is it that you're really hoping for? It's this, what we hope for. God's setting things right. That's what I hope for. And I know that's what you hope for. God is going to set things right. God's going to make everything right. The promise is, when you hope for God making things right, you can have the faith that he will. And you can know that it will happen. And I know you have some worry. You have some worry, maybe about a relationship, maybe about a job, maybe about financial problems, maybe about your health, maybe about the health of someone that you love. Um, Jesus says, will you trust me? Because I'm going about setting all things right. Will you trust me? I am Lord. And you don't need to worry. So faith is trusting in Jesus' character. And when you trust in Jesus' character that he is perfectly and infinitely good and loving, you can believe that there is no better place in which to put your life, in which to put your relationships, in which to put your career, your finances, your families. And I say that not speaking about a public conviction or a private conviction, but a core conviction. In a way, we place those things in Jesus' hand that leads to the right action on your part, the, the trusting act of obedience. So one more statement about bold faith. Bold faith means committing yourself to that hope that God is going to set all things right and living like it. So I want you to think of one dilemma that you're facing, one decision that you're facing, uh, one thing that you're worried about, one obstacle that you have in your life right now, or maybe in your family's life. And I want us to apply bold faith to that dilemma or that situation. Believe Jesus does miracles, and he's going to do one here. And then commit to carrying out a faithful response to the Lord and trusting in the Lord. Do you have one in mind, a dilemma that you can bring to the Lord? You may have a dilemma in mind. You may also be thinking, I don't know if I can do that. Bold faith, I don't know. I don't know. So here's, here's one final thing that I want you to know about bold faith. Bold faith doesn't have to be massive faith. There may be another scripture that you were thinking of this morning, and it's this one from Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus calls us to bold faith, but he also says mustard size faith, that's also faith. And how do we, how do we hold these things together? Bold faith and mustard size faith, just this tiny little faith. I think here's how we hold those two ideas together. Mustard seed-sized faith 
is bold faith when it's not a divided faith. Mustard-sized faith can be bold faith if, and here's the big if, if you put your faith, however little it may be, wholly in Jesus. So you're not diversifying your faith. You're not saying, okay, I'm going to put a little stock of what Jesus is telling me here. I'm going to put a little stock of what my friends are telling me here, even if they conflict. And I'm going to put a little stock in what I believe to be true and just kind of diversify my faith. Mustard, size, faith, that is bold faith, means you may not be sure what's going to happen in a certain situation, but you're going with Jesus on this one. May not work out quite the way that I expect, but I'm going with Jesus on this one. I might not see what God is doing on the first day, may not see what God is doing on the second day, but there is a third day coming, and I'm going to put my hope in that. I'm going to hope, and I'm going to hope, and I'm going to hope because the God who miraculously rose Jesus from the grave on the third day has a miracle in store for me. That's bold faith. Even even when it feels like it's just the size of a mustard seed. But that's also the goodness of our Lord Jesus. Because ultimately, it's him that we are putting our faith in and not the size of our faith, right? So let's believe. Bold belief. Bold faith. And let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you rose from the grave so that we could experience that in our own lives, that we can experience resurrections in our own lives, resurrection from the the disbelief, the the, um, pessimistic attitudes that we can have. We pray for new life, new hope, new optimism, new belief to rise up in our hearts and in our minds. the sicknesses that we go through, the difficulties that we endure, we know you have a resurrection in store. New dreams, new life. Thank you so much. As we present our situations and our dilemmas and our crises to you, Lord, we believe that you're going to be working through them. You're going to be bringing us good. That you're going to be using all things to help shape us to be like Jesus. And we will never, never, never give up on our belief that you love us so deeply, so deeply that you gave your son to die for us. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.